At the intersection of true crime and real estate, you'll find Crime Estate. I'm Heather. And my name is Elena. As real estate agents and true crime junkies, we view crimes through a different lens. So walk through the door of some of the most notorious true crimes with us and discover how sometimes the scene of the crime has its own story to tell. Hi, Heather. Hey, Elena. Hey, we're back. I know. Happy Friday. Happy we, Friday. We haven't told our listeners. It's sort of our Friday lunch hour tradition now it's to... Fun record a new podcast for yeah, you guys. We have some champagne and cheese and... You don't have to give away all our secrets. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> our husbands think we're working really right. hard over lunch, remember? <laughs> Melanie, you want to catch us up on news? Yeah. So this week is... And uh, we should probably let our listeners know that we're recording this in advance um, to, to get our groove on. And we will be then submitting it in the future. But right now is, I think maybe, is it week five or six of the Murdoch murders uh, trial? I'm not sure what week number it is, but it will forever be known as the week where Alec... Yes. Uh, Testified. Yes. That's a good way of looking at it. So this is day two of his um, testimony. And uh, it's enthralling and it's sad and it's weird, everything all together. I don't know. I I, I thought I would be, we would be really excited to hear from him. And now I just kind of feel sad and mm. kind of dirty about it all because on one hand, it's a father talking about the deaths of his son and his wife. And then, but there's this big black cloud of, did he do it? And I don't know. It just feels a lot more awkward than I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. Have you watched any of it, Elena? No. I've been reading the recaps at night. I just watched the Netflix series on it, which was fascinating. So I can see why you've been so obsessed with it. Totally see it. Yeah. The Netflix series is on my list for this weekend because I think it just came out Mm -hmm. in the last week or two. But Mm -hmm. I've been blown away by how polite both of the Murdoch's have been on stand. I mean, there are some Southern, like, niceties going on in that court. Even when they're angry, they're Yes, sirs, and yes, ma'ams, and yeah. I remember when during the nine one one call, the original nine one one call, when he called, when he found his wife, or or either found or whatnot, uh, his wife and son's death. He kept saying yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am, um, mm-hmm. over and over again um, to the nine one one operator, and it, it struck me as weird because I was like, okay, there's polite now. That's just like overly right, polite right. right now. This is not the time or the place. Um, but I must be that kind of that culture. I know I was feeling a little uncomfortable early on with some of the testimony where they always would say, Miss Maggie, like, you know, they're talking, and it was some of the, um, I don't know, the the people that worked for them, some of the people that helped them out. And they, uh, and it seemed very awkward to me to always be um, Miss or Mr. Um, The first name, Uh, it seemed very old school. But then I hear um, even the the Paul's uh, friends calling them Miss Maggie mm-hmm. or Mr. Mr. Paul. And yeah. it, it's definitely, even though we're in Texas, I don't know anybody who talks no, like that. that's interesting that you say that. So, you know, I didn't move to Texas until I was in my 20s. And we grew up calling everybody Miss or Mr. First Name. Mm-hmm. And as a matter of fact, my brother and his wife started dating during high school. And to this day, they've been married, gosh, 15 years. And my sister-in-law still calls my mom Miss Kathy because that's what she grew up calling her. Mm -hmm. And she was like, it just never felt normal to switch. But it was hard for me to teach my son to call people, you know, 
Miss Ritchie or, or mm-hmm. by their last name. That felt so formal to me, but that's definitely more how we do it here. So to me, it's felt really <laughs> normal to hear them saying that. And, you know, they have a nickname for everybody. There's there's Papa and there's oh, Big T and, you know. But, yeah. And you're from Kentucky. So maybe yeah. that kind of comes from it. And I mean, even though I'm from Texas, I mean, I'm from suburban Texas. So I I wouldn't say we're really Texas. We're not um, small town. But my husband is from a small town and he he kind of walked into the room early on and he was thinking it was very kind of heartening back to the antebellum era. Um, he felt very awkward with the way it was coming across. And maybe it happened to be that there was people of different ethnicities were, were saying it. And he thought it was a little subservient. Um, but I think once you start seeing it, that that it was uh, to just anybody, um, it I can understand that, but it did feel very subservient when I first observed it. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about another small town today. Very small. Very small. We're going to be talking about the Velisca Axe Murder House. It's in Iowa, and it's very interesting for a, a lot of reasons, but it's interesting to me that all of ours so far, our podcasts have been in well-known cities like LA and Boulder and New York City, and this one's in Iowa. And I don't know about y'all, but when I think about Iowa, I think about cornfields. That's all I can think about. And teeny tiny farmhouses. That's what I think about. What do y'all think about Iowa? Well, I have the pleasure of having (laughs) in-laws in Iowa. And so we go a couple times a year. And I will tell you, I have never met someone from Iowa that I don't like. They are salt with earth, great people, except for probably whoever committed this crime (laughs) that we're about to talk about. Uh, But yeah, it's a lot of cornfields. It's a lot of snow and a lot of great people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I have to admit, that's one area of the country I have never been to. So I don't know much about it other than I think the University of Iowa has a really good writer's program. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I'm excited to hear about it. Well, I'll tell you a little story about Iowa. As we do on every episode, let's talk about the home. The home was built in 1868 in Villisca, Iowa. It's about 100 miles outside of Des Moines on lot 310, which is now 508 East 2nd Street. It was built by architect George Loomis, and it's a two-story, three-bedroom, 913-square-foot Queen Anne-style farmhouse. Um, I thought those are two separate styles of home, a Queen Anne and a farmhouse, but I guess for that time, there were Queen Anne farmhouse style. Yeah, I can picture that if you think about like old little small town squares where you had Mm -hmm. almost like a, I would call it a Victorian almost, you know, it's it's maybe wood siding and you've got the turrets and oftentimes they did a lot of um, different colors. Right. You know, like complementary colors right. on the home. Right. If you look at pictures of it, it looks like a little dollhouse, creepy little dollhouse. Um, now that we're about to learn what happened in there, but it sat on 0. 0.17 acres. In 1903, the home was purchased by Josiah and Sarah Moore and their family. I couldn't get a lot of information on this particular home, but I did find some general information about homes built at this time. And it was built on what they call balloon frame house. So the f- the support beams went from the foundation up to the attic. They don't do it like that anymore because if a fire started at the bottom floor, there's nothing to stop it because it just went straight up, one beam oh, yeah, all the way to the top. I mean, that makes sense um, that that would be a change in building code for yes, sure. <laughs> absolutely. I also looked up what home buying was like in the early 20th century, and it looked very different than what we have now. Typically, in the early 1900s, you took out a five-year loan and put 50% down. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's that's a lot. <laughs> I mean, so, by our standards. Well, their standards too, I guess. 
yeah, I mean, I guess 50% of a hundred or a thousand is still, you know, 50% of that number. Right. Um, That's interesting because, you know, so much of industry then was, um, especially in Iowa, right, would be um, agricultural. Mm -hmm. And if you had a bad crop one year, like a five-year repayment. Wow. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So it's in one of these little Queen Anne-style farmhouses that we set our scene. On the early morning of June 10th, 1912, the entire Moore family plus two overnight guests were brutally murdered while they slept in their beds. Josiah, 43, his wife, Sarah, 39, Herman Moore, 11, Catherine Moore, 10, Boyd Moore, 7, Paul Moore, 5, plus Lena Stillinger and Ina Stillinger, 8 and 12, had walked three blocks home the evening of June 9th after a church program. There are a few theories as to when the perpetrator entered the home. Some believe that he entered sometime between the hours of midnight and 5 a.m., while another theory is that he entered the home while the family was at church and hid in the attic until the attack. What we do know is the murderer grabs an axe from the backyard and an oil lamp from inside the home and crept up the stairs, first entering the room of Mr. and Mrs. Moore. He struck Josiah repeatedly with the sharp side of the axe, inflicting so much damage to his face that his eyes weren't recovered from the home. He then bludgeoned Sarah, Herman, Mary, Catherine, Arthur, and Paul with a blunt end of the axe. Essentially, he beat them all to death. Both of the upstairs bedroom ceilings had gouges, apparently the result of the upswing of the axe. So that's weird. Like he used the sharp side for Josiah and the rest of them were beat with the blunt end of the axe. Weird. Yeah. The perpetrator then went downstairs to the guest bedroom where the Stillinger sister slept and first killed Ina, then Lena. Lena likely woke up as her sister was being killed as she had defensive wounds on her arms. In the end, she was also killed and found with her nightgown pulled up and her undergarments missing. Despite how she was found, it's not widely believed that she was sexually assaulted. The axe was left in the bedroom where the Stillinger girls were murdered. All eight victims were killed while they were sleeping in bed. And this is all horrible and awful, but listen to these interesting facts from the crime scene. All of the victims' faces were covered with clothing from the home after they were murdered. All the mirrors, windows, and the glass and entry doors were all covered with clothing and cloth. Presumably, the perpetrators searched through the drawers to find these items. Investigators found a four-pound slab of bacon wrapped in a cloth leaning against the wall near the axe. And officials found a plate of uneaten food and a bowl of bloody water in the kitchen, and all the doors were locked from the inside. Wow. Isn't that weird? Well, all of it's weird separately. Um, Let's break that down. Yeah, that's what I think we need to do. So don't they tell you typically if somebody covers the face, it's because it's that they knew the victim? Isn't that I think that's probably widely accepted, but he did it after they were murdered. Like he had already done the act and then went back through and covered their faces. Well, and I think it's interesting that he covered the mirrors. I could see maybe covering the windows if you didn't want somebody to discover it very quickly. But covering the mirrors almost feels somewhat religious. Okay. Yeah, I can see maybe. that. Or uh, maybe religious isn't the right word. Maybe uh, superstitious. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. What about the bacon? I, I don't even know what to <laughs> make of really the bacon. Weird. Like, did he just drop it on his way out the door? But he wrapped it in cloth. Now, maybe that's what they did back then. I mean, I found an, another account that said that half of the bacon was found in the room, the four pounds, and then there was another chunk of bacon found in the ice box. But did they wrap it before they put it in the ice box? Like, I don't know. 
I don't know much about food safety uh, in the early 1900s. Yeah. So. <laughs> I don't trust it, whatever it was. No. <laughs> um, yeah, super weird. And that the doors were locked from the inside. Yeah, that's odd too. Very, very odd. Well, and this is the second story that we've talked about where perhaps the perpetrator was waiting in the home. About that too. Which makes me feel like I need to do a better job of paying attention when Checking I come home. everything in the home, yeah. Uh, they think that because supposedly there were cigarette butts found in the attic, but we don't know. I mean, it could maybe Josiah had a terrible smoking habit. He didn't want Sarah to know about, and you, I don't know, went up into the attic. I don't know. But they found that supposedly no one in the family smoked and they found that up, upstairs. Okay. Yeah. So the grizzly scene was discovered sometime after dawn when a neighbor who was outside hanging her laundry noticed that the Moors hadn't yet started their morning chores. Wait, pause. (laughs) I just, what a different world. (laughs) Right. I mean, how long would it take for you to think like of a morning that your neighbors were off of their daily schedule? It'd be a while. Be a while. Maybe a couple days, right? Like, oh, I haven't seen them leave or come home. (laughs) Right. Okay, so after trying the front door of the Moore home and finding that it was locked from the inside, the neighbor, Miss Peckham, called Josiah's brother, Ross Moore. Upon entering the home with a key, Ross first found the Stillinger girls and dark stained bedsheets in the downstairs bedroom and called for Miss Peckham to call the sheriff. The remaining bodies were found upstairs by City Marshal Hank Horton. So like our first podcast, the John Bonet, uh, this one's unsolved. Yeah, I think that adds a different level of history or just um, a different air of confusion to the home, right? If you're talking about the property Mm -hmm. and the crime that occurred there, there's no finality Mm -hmm. to that Mm -hmm. crime when it's unsolved. Right. There's no, this guy was found. He's you know, going to be in prison for the rest of his life. There's no, we, we don't know. We don't know. He could be the neighbor. We don't, we don't know. We don't know who he is. So there were suspects, and because of the nature of the town, it was by a railroad, it was super small, it was a doors unlock type of town. Um, There was one, though, there was one suspect that did stand out. He was tried for the crime twice. It was Reverend George Kelly, and by all accounts, George Kelly was a super strange guy. He was a traveling preacher. He had attended the program that the Moores and Stillinger sisters had attended that evening at the church. Um, There were some reports that he had been a pedophile. And and again, kind of going back to this could have been lost in translation over the past hundred plus years. Like, I, I don't know. And that was one report that I saw that, that that was, you know, what he did. He did sign a confession months after the crime saying that God had whispered to him to quote, suffer the children to come unto me. He said that supposedly under intense law enforcement interrogation, and he later recanted that confession. But he was tried in September of um, 1914. The jury deadlocked 11 to 1 for acquittal, and the second jury quitted him completely in November of that year. Okay, so number one, I don't really trust traveling preachers. So I'm already thinking this guy probably right. did it. <laughs> um, sorry if you are a traveling preacher. Are, that are those creeps things? me out. I don't know. I just, I've heard so many bad stories. Gotcha. So, so that's a no for me. Um, but then we were talking about how they covered the mirrors and that mm-hmm. felt religious to me. Yeah, you and did then you say bring that. up that mm-hmm. this guy was, you know, liked for the crime. Right. I didn't even put that together. So now I'm, I don't, I like him for it. I think he did it. But then you were saying he confessed. Mm-hmm. And I do feel like there's a lot going on right now, or we've heard a lot of stories about how people have falsely confessed to crimes, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, just to 
to stop the interrogation. And if he's super spiritual or religious um, and an odd man, I could Mm -hmm. see how, you know, being under that intense pressure, you might just crack and confess to something you didn't do. So I'm going to play both sides of the coin here. Mm -hmm. I think he did it, but I don't know that the confession is why I think he did it. Right. Yeah. No, I like that. Makes sense. Also, can I say I grew up in this type of town and we only locked our doors twice. You locked your doors when everybody went to a funeral because everybody knew you were going to be gone. And then if you remembered it at night, (laughs) but that was it. (laughs) Oh no, we're not like that here. Lock everything. Yeah. You just don't know. I mean, just don't know. Can I say, okay, so in your house, who does the checking and locking of doors at night? Uh, My husband, because it's dark and I don't want to go check. What about you, Melanie? Um, Most likely whoever goes to bed um, last. And yeah, so usually my husband's fallen asleep on the couch. And so I will go upstairs first. And so I will just make sure that the front door is locked as I'm walking by it. That's smart. Yeah. So I adore my husband, but I feel like locking the doors is a man job. (laughs) I just went back to 1952. Yeah. Time warp. And he will not do it. So every night I have to walk through. It just doesn't occur to him. It's not like he's saying like, right. I want to leave the doors unlocked. Right. Every night I have to go through oh the house. Oh my gosh. Well, tell him about the story in Iowa. Well, yeah. I mean, he's already <laughs> lived in the Iowa murder house. Right? That's, that's yeah. coming up in another episode. So apparently he just doesn't care. <laughs> um, I know you're convinced, Heather, that the preacher did it. The traveling preacher. Just I am convinced. Not good vibes at all. And I hear Melanie over there tapping away on Google. So I know you're, you're looking at something. What do you think? Oh, well, from my very quick research while you were talking, because I always have to look things up when you're talking about, I want to like, I want to see a visual. I want to see where the location is, is that there was a variety of other axe murderers that occurred within, you know, that decade in that time period. And there's a lot of suspicion about uh, different people by train, because if, you know, this town, like so many of these small um, farmhouse rural towns in Texas or in Iowa, Mm -hmm were built around railroad tracks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the idea that somebody would come in transient, do a bad deed, and then leave really quickly right. um, on a train. And there's a variety of different murders, um, different people. There's one that's called uh, William Mansfield that was a suspect in a very similar Colorado Springs uh, murder that was only nine months before this. And what's interesting about that was it was also, of course, via an axe, but the murderer hung aprons and skirts mm-hmm. to cover the windows, and moreover, they... Uh, covered the heads of the victims with bedclothes, which sounds eerily suspicious mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. your case. And, you know, th- there was a author, uh, and it looks like an author and his daughter, Paul Mueller, wrote a book in 2017 called The Man from the Train. And uh, Bill James and his daughter, Rachel McCarthy James, discussed, they started off trying to investigate the Velasca murders, and then they kind of linked it as possible to a whole serial killer that um, traveled via train. And they, they linked uh, a whole variety of different killing spree that occurred over that time period. But one of the things that was making me think about it was, you know, the, the acts, it, it just seems so awful. It seems so mm-hmm. cruel. Personal. But then when you start to think about it, probably everyone back then had an axe and it was probably really common to be sitting outside because, you know, especially in mm-hmm. some of these colder climates, 
you broke down your firewood with an axe and you would leave it in the backyard and then bring your wood inside to, to you know, help heat the house. Mm-hmm. So where I think maybe today we think of an axe as you know, just so cruel and um, unusual. Like, I don't, I'm, I think maybe I might have an axe in my garage. Maybe, maybe yes, maybe no. I don't know. We're not uh, chopping firewood. No, <laughs> no. Um, but th- this is probably a, a really normal. It's like having a shovel outside. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I, I feel like I'm going to have to read that book now. Yeah, I kind of like the fact that it was a man and his daughter There's, doing yeah, the investigation. So that's pretty. That's pretty cute. Yeah, we'll link to that in the show notes in case yes. anybody else wants to read along with us. Do y'all want to hear what's happened to the home since then? Yeah, absolutely. So since the murder in 1912, the title to the home has been transferred eight times. Most currently, the home is owned by Daniel and his wife, Martha Lynn. And while most people have gone to great lengths to hide or mask the events of a home, of a murder home, the Lynns have embraced the murder. They have opened a museum and they rent rooms. They restored the home to the state that it was at the time of the murder, including removing the vinyl siding that was added, adding the third bedroom that had been removed, and they also removed the plumbing and electrical from the home. like completely making it as it was when the murder occurred in 1912. Okay. Real estate agent talk here. Ready. Unless you're real committed to this house and this plan, don't remove the plumbing and electrical. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's a a bad idea. Right. Right. A hundred percent. But they sound committed. So good for them. Yes. Yeah. They they have a great website that, that lists everything you can tell. They just poured a lot of love and research into this home. And um, I didn't notice if they were Iowa natives. I'm I'm assuming that they were because they knew about the Villisca murder house. I'd never heard of it prior to this, but they have loved on that home and are very interested in keeping the legacy of that alive. You know, what's interesting is the Lizzie Borden house has been turned into a bed and breakfast and a, a museum to this day. So... Yeah, there's a trend for true crime aficionados, even for um, incidents that are well over 100 years old. Right. Very interesting. Would you all go and like stay in a bed and breakfast or a place that was like advertising itself because of the crime? Because that's different than buying it or renting it, right? Would you go and stay as a result of the crime happening there? I would not. I would maybe visit during the day, like museum hours, but I would not stay overnight. Yeah, as much as I love true crime, like it feels a little too voyeuristic to go to a place that's set up as a museum. For me. What about you, Melanie? Melanie would do anything. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I'd be as interested to do it. Maybe if it was a museum and I'm in the area or there was something like more historic about it. But I mean, if it's just a house that a family died at... Yeah, voyeuristic is a good word. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I believe in like attachments. I'd be afraid that something would like attach to me. <laughs> okay, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> well, speaking of, paranormal events have been documented in the home. Um, and there's been several TV shows that have come through there and, and documented and crazy. Are, are they like good paranormal events or bad? Is it like, is so, it that the, you know... Well, they don't have electricity. So maybe the transistor radio turns up or is it, you know. I saw one report that a paranormal investigator stabbed himself. Like he came under some sort of, I don't know what you call it, spell or trance. And he stabbed himself, had to be removed from the home. So Hmm. there's something to to me because I believe in all these things. Something's going on in that home and I I don't want any part of it. Interesting. So 
I've teased and told y'all that my husband grew up in a murder house, Mm -hmm. but my dad, when he was growing up, they also like out farmland, they built a house on a plot where the house had burned down and the family died in the house fire. Oh man. So not necessarily a, you know, a true crime, just a horrible Mm -hmm. tragedy. But they swear up and down that house was haunted. And, you know, I only believe about a tenth of what my dad says because he's a big prankster. But his sisters swear up and down that it was haunted. Um, but they only, he was like, it was like a good haunting. You know, like the organ would play downstairs oh, okay. or the garage door would raise. He was like, it wasn't ever anything sinister. It was just things happened in the home that nobody could account for. Right. Well, maybe something attached to your family. Maybe. That, maybe it's you. Maybe. Your husband, your dad. Well, okay. So to be clear, both of these things happened before I was in the I picture know, with either but. person. Oh, maybe. <laughs> okay. Well, it's a whole other therapy session. <laughs> so buy, sell, or rent? Um, well, I think I might have bought it back before it was a museum. I wouldn't buy it now. Mm-hmm. Especially without plumbing and electrical. Yeah, definitely yeah. not. Definitely not. Uh, what about you? Uh, no. Only You're just I, a no on I, all of it. I'm just a no on all of it. I think I had a similar feeling towards the John Bonet home. Like, I, we don't know who did it. I don't, I just don't, it doesn't set right. I just don't like it. Does it matter to you that a crime against a child occurred there as opposed to an adult? Does that factor into your decision-making process? I don't think so. If it does, it's way in the back of my head. I'm not aware of it. Okay. I don't think so. Doesn't make it any better. Um, Definitely yeah, not. Yeah. I, I I would say no for all of these things. Other than, I mean, also it's in a small town that I probably can't get a job in um, from, from that perspective. But no, I don't think so. I also think in the notoriety of this house um, is... I mean, the fact that it's now a museum, there's going to always be people. It's, it's, you know, yes, the Sharon Tate house is very notorious, but it was sort of harder to get to. This seems like all your neighbors would always know and, you know, call that, call it the murder house. Well, Mm -hmm. plus the Sharon Tate house was like in the Hollywood Hills. So, you know, you might be able to get a great deal on a place up there. (laughs) Yeah. uh, I love my family in Iowa, but I'm not moving there anytime (laughs) soon. Oh, no, 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 no. I couldn't see you in Iowa. No, no. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I don't think so. You know, maybe if it was one of those houses um, that was moved, like, to a different lot, hmm. maybe. So mm. it's more about the uh, rural location for you, you think? Oh, no, I mean, I think it's all, I think it's all together. Okay. It's all together going on. So you go next week. Yeah, so it's interesting. I had no idea what you were going to tell us about this week, but next week we're also, there's going to be a little bit of a tie-in to a rail town and how a railroad played a little bit of part in uh, in a house and a story that's a little bit closer to home for us. So we're going to be in Dallas next week and we'll uh, talk about that then. All right. Thanks, everyone. Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening and being a part of our Crime Estate family. If you're curious about today's feature crime estate, you could find additional photos and details from today's episode online at crimestatepodcast.com or on Facebook and Instagram by following at Crime Estate Podcast. Have a crime estate we should cover? Shoot us an email at crimeestatepodcast at gmail.com. Until next week. <laughs> <laughs>